This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Good morning, everyone. You are listening to the Master Gardener Hour, a one-hour show where we talk to garden professionals and gardeners from all walks of life, all growing a variety of different plants. My name is Kate Copsey, and I am the host of the show. And if you have any questions about something in your garden, please post it on our Facebook page, and maybe we can answer the question on the air. This morning, we are going to be talking to Claire Jones, a landscape designer in Maryland, and we're going to talk about bees and pollinators. Good morning, Claire. Good morning, Kate. It's such a pleasure to be here. Oh, you are more than welcome. Yes, so let's start with maybe some basics about bees um, and how many varieties are and when they appear in spring assuming that we, we actually get spring yeah well I'm going to be talking about um, native bees and honeybees as I'm a beekeeper I love honeybees but native bees are extremely important and in North America there's over 4,000 varieties can you believe it? That's a lot of native bees. And they're mostly overlooked bees. Um, they've been here for a long, long time. In contrast, honeybees were brought here in the 1600s by the colonists. So they are what I call an invasive species. But they have become very important to our ecosystem as they are responsible for pollinating up to one-third of our food supply. So very important. Um, on the planet, there's over 20,000 different species of bees. Ooh. Is, that, is that just in the U.S. or is that globally? Globally, on the oh. planet. And there's more in counting. They're always discovering new ones. And they are on every continent except Antarctica. And they're present wherever there are flowering plants, which is, which is virtually everywhere except Antarctica. So there are so many different bees out there that we are just not aware of that are going about their daily business pollinating. And when I talk about pollination, um, bees are not the only ones that pollinate. There are different things that pollinate like um, butterflies and hummingbirds and things that we might not be aware of. Flies are great pollinators. Hoverflies are wonderful pollinators. Bats and really any animal that visits a flower is considered a pollinator. So that it covers a lot of territory. Yeah. Um, and so... In the the spring, when they appear, um, do they maybe hibernate over the winter in the the snow zone like mammals, or do they fly south like birds um, to get out of the cold? Well, honeybees hibernate, and they actually form a ball inside the hive when it's very, very cold, and inside that ball is the queen. They keep her warm by beating their wings. 
and they are the only insect that will survive a winter in full adult size. Now, other bees, like, uh, say, a mason bee, which is pretty common, they lay eggs. It develops into a larva, and this is all done in the spring. That larva is surrounded by cocoon and lasts there in that nest for 10 months growing. And then it emerges, emerges as an adult in early spring, say in March, about right now. So just when the flowers, I guess, are starting to come out normally, right? Yep. Yeah, but yes. if your garden is like my garden, I don't have much out there to forage. <laughs> There's yeah. not much bloom. Yeah, and and so I know that some bees, um, that there's native bees and non-native ones, um, and do they all sort of hibernate kind of in the same in the same way and in the same fashion? Because um, so, I know you see stories of kind of um, big. Uh, developments on trees and things like that and i know some are underground um so so what are the differences um of the way that they um they they hibernate and make their nests okay well the only way that um the native bees will survive a winter is the queen will survive and she starts the next generation. But all the other um, workers, they are they die at the end of the year. So anything that's in a nest or underground, it's the queen that um, has laid these eggs, and they're growing. The larva's growing, survives the winter, and then emerges when it becomes warm. The honeybee's the only one that will stay alive in adult form. So they okay. all start emerging as soon as the uh, weather warms up in the spring. Okay. Um, and I know that um, plants have native ranges. Um, so, you know, whether it's the southwest or southern, do bees have that same um, native area domination um or do they or or are they all um particularly kind kind of just general over this continent and maybe the european bees are different and the asian bees are different yeah there's different varieties or species for each area and they've developed you know differently in each area because each location has different um things that they have developed for so there are mason bees pretty much all over the U.S., um, but the other types of bees, the sweat bees, they're kind of local. We have different, like, bumblebee species than, say, Europe has bumblebees. Um, it, they are similar, but they all have different um, adaptations for that different area. And I know the ones that I tend to see um, around the house, they're very, very small and almost kind of a, a beigey kind of color rather than the typical um, bumblebee, the classic bumblebee type with bright, bright stuff. Um, and so does that mean that they maybe are a native bee that's a lot smaller than the, the, um, the, the ones, the non-native ones? Uh, yeah, you might be seeing there's really tiny bees, like the sweat bee is pretty small. 
And, of course, the bumblebee is one of the largest native bees. So in your particular area of the country, you might have, say, a, a couple hundred different varieties that you're seeing. And it could be really any of the laundry list of the different native bees because they vary widely in size, habits, and um, markings. And so is it easy to tell which one it is, or, or do we generally just appreciate that um, may, maybe uh, the bee is the, you know, um, just any sort of bee? Um, should it make a difference? Well, it really shouldn't. Um, when you see a native bee, um, just appreciate it that it's going about its job, doing its pollination work. Um, if you're really curious, you can, of course, take a picture and Google it and identify it. But all native bees are beneficial in pollinating. They are really hard at work doing their job, and they rarely sting. Um, and honeybees are the same way. If you get a sting from a bee, it's mostly from a yellow jacket, a wasp, a hornet, um, the carnivores of the insect world. Um, most all of the native bees will not sting you unless you corner them. Say you hold it in your hand and squeeze it, which I, I think anybody would be crazy to do, but that is the way you get stung by a native bee or a honeybee also. Now, I will get stung by honeybees when I am in their hive collecting their honey because they are defending their home and their food, and they will sting me. But if you see a honeybee out there in the flowers, leave it alone, or any native bee, because they're busy and they're not going to bother you. And I really can't tell you how many times as a landscape designer I have clients ask me to design a garden with lots and lots of flowers. But they say, no bees. And I'm like, well, it, that's not possible. You're going to have bees. You are going to have bees. Um, but those bees, again, are busy at their work, and they're not going to bother you unless you bother them. And, and it's certainly f fun to, to watch them um, because they, they seem to visit the same flower time and time again. Um, but I know with um, a, a lot of beekeepers, which has become a very popular hobby, they've got hives. Um, and we talked about, you know, the different nesting type things. Um, is a bee just a man-made version of what a bee would normally use? So they, they go to the, the hive rather than um, burrow under the ground or what they would normally do? Well, yeah, honeybee, we're, we're managing them. It's almost like we're managing a herd of sheep. We're providing a home for them, which is a box with frames, which has honeycomb. So we are artificially providing them a home. Likewise, with mason bees, we can provide a home with, like, a piece of PVC pipe and put tubes in there, and that provides an artificial home for them. But a honeybee, say a honeybee, you didn't have a hive for them, they will find their own home. They'll go to a tree, and I've seen wild trees that have honeybees inside them, 
and they will make these combs, these long dripping combs inside the hollow of a tree. So they are quite happy making their own home. And uh, native bees, like the mason bee, will go to uh, a pile of debris, find some old sticks, maybe some cut sticks, and will lay their eggs in a tube. So they will find their home no matter if you provide it or if they have to go out in the wild so so for those you don't provide i guess um a, a, a proper home you know they find they find that their own t- type of um the best for for them rather than using a man-made hive which uh, i guess is a little bit like some of the birds and and things like that where you put out bird houses you can't actually attract all sorts of birds or, or shall we say the bluebirds don't necessarily um are the ones that nest in your house it could be something totally different um, na- nature manages to find I guess it's its own way and, and adaptations um, but you know we need to go for our first commercial break here Claire but we'll be back talking more about bees with Claire Jones on the Master Gardener Hour and we will be back in just a moment Do your children know where their food comes from? At ConnectingFarmToFork.com, there's all kinds of ways to help your child understand how 300 million of us here in America stay nourished, clothed, and healthy. Activities, food facts, and farm visits help young people learn about America's hardworking farmers and have lots of fun doing it. Visit ConnectingFarmToFork.com today for a learning experience that will really grow on you. ConnectingFarmToFork.com, brought to you by the people who care at Feedstuff's Food Link. Could an app be the answer to a better garden? Absolutely. It's the new free app, Homegrown with Bonnie Plants. Note, track, and photograph your garden's progress. Personalize your weather and reminders. Get variety info, grow guides, hands-free dictation, and more. The Homegrown with Bonnie Plants app. The sharpest tool in your garden. Download it free on the App Store. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to the Master Gardener Hour. Remember, you can catch up with us on Facebook at the Master Gardener Hour. And if you miss any shows, you can find archives at americaswebradio.com. They have a web page and you can find us on iTunes and you can find them on Stitchers. And this morning we are talking about bees and other pollinators um, with uh, Claire Jones from Maryland, a landscape designer. Um, and Claire, do um, bees generally go um, to the same type of flower, um, or do they? Um, do different bees prefer a different type of flower, like maybe a sunflower or a petunia flower, or that type, whatever flower it is? Okay. Well, yeah, of course, bees do prefer different types of flowers, and it depends on the type of bee and how long their tongue is because different flowers, the nectar is deeper into the flower. So um, a honeybee is quite happy going to, say, an apple orchard or an almond orchard and going from flower to flower to flower and pollinating. 
and they will go back to the hive when they find that source and do their waggle dance, telling the other bees in the hive how far and what direction to come get the pollen. So if you go to a store and you see clover honey or orange blossom honey, then you know that that bee has been pollinating that type of flower exclusively. Now, as a beekeeper, I don't have an almond orchard or an apple orchard. Um, I have lots of wildflowers and different variety of flowers. So I call my honey wildflower honey. And if you go to a farmer's market, most uh, farmer's markets will sell wildflower honey. It's a diverse um, mix of, of uh, nectar from different types of flowers. But... If you live in Florida and you live next to a orange orchard, then you can say you have orange blossom honey. So um, bees will go where they're close to. A honeybee will fly up to four miles to find the nectar and pollen it needs. Now, a native bee won't fly as far. It will forage much closer to home and like a mason bee, maybe a couple hundred yards at most. So honeybees are valuable in that they will forage long distances and they will do like an almond orchard, for instance. Almond orchards are uh, pollinated by honeybees and they uh, beekeepers bring in the hive, they set them up next to the almond orchard and they say go to it and that's what they do. They pollinate the whole orchard but native bees will also help alongside the honeybees and by the way native bees are much more efficient two or three times more efficient at pollinating than honeybees so it's nice to have a good mix of the honeybees along with the native bees you want a diverse variety of bees to pollinate your orchard your garden, whatever you have to pollinate. And and so once they've got the pattern established, say, with apple trees or um, hyssop or, or whatever they're um, deciding to feed on, they go back to the, the hive and then they come back and they visit that same plant again? Um, rather Again and again and again, yeah. Oh, so, so if you see... Um, a bee on something like a coneflower, for instance, um, and, and, and it's obviously going to come back and visit that same coneflower. What do they do? I mean, most perennials only last a couple of weeks um, and pollen on apple trees. What do they do for the rest of the time? Well, that's a good question because, all right, say they've pollinated, they've come, they've collected all the nectar of the coneflower. Well, they're looking for something else after the coneflower. It might be um, a niece hyssop. So that's why it's important as a gardener to plant a diverse variety that will bloom successively. So once the coneflowers are done, you got to have something else that is attractive to bees that's going to be up and blooming that they're going to come to. So coneflower, you know, that blooms in the midsummer. Well, you might want to have something later, like anise hyssop. The Agastache family blooms later, and it blooms for weeks and weeks and weeks. So my Agastache is a very valuable plant for my 
uh, garden because it blooms for at least two months, and the bees will come to it the entire time, day after day after day. So with that in mind, you want to have things that are blooming early, and early would be like hellebores. You want some maples. You want really early stuff, pussy willows. Um, hellebores are really important because they bloom in the winter and early, early spring, and they bloom for four months at a time. So that is something that's blooming for me. It's going to start real soon in about March 28th, the end of March. It'll start. Also, the early bulbs are important, winter aconite, bacillus, snowdrops, crocus. Um, they're out there when nothing else is blooming. Don't discount your weeds. Weeds are really important, and especially if you're um, really into your lawn and you're pulling those dandelions, stop it. You want those dandelions to bloom because they provide forage for bees when not much else is blooming early in the spring. Sometimes I have dandelions blooming in December even, and I'm thinking, oh, yeah, good. The bees can visit it. Oh, so so actually, um, I, I guess if, if a bee or a group of bee um, maybe is visiting um, a, a squash flower or something like that, um, a, a diverse landscape is, uh, particularly if you go, go into a veggie garden, which needs pollinators, um, would... Mm-hmm. Would you kind of, uh, you said that the, the mason bees, for instance, will go 200 yards. You have to have the flowers fairly close by, right? Oh, yeah. So if you want your flowers close to your mason bees where they live, then you're going to put a mason bee house. And I mentioned maybe a PVC or you could drill holes in wood. You want that house really close to the foraging. So you're going to put it. Um, like next to your house, it could be under an overhang, and I have mine in a shed next to my vegetable garden. There's an overhang on the shed. It's south, it faces south towards the sun, and there's an overhang that protects it from weather. So it faces my vegetable garden. So that nest I have on the wall of my shed, and those mason bees, they reproduce in those um, nests, and they can just hop out, fly over to my vegetable garden, and pollinate. So proximity is really important for native bees. Honeybees aren't as important because, um, you know, like I said, they can fly up to four miles. But, of course, the closer, the better, because the less energy it takes for that honeybee to get to the flower. You want it close enough. So that's why I have flowers around all my hives. Yeah. Um, and I'm told that um, native plants particularly have more nutrients for native wildlife. Does that include um, bees, or is that something that maybe is not quite established at this point? It's a theory rather than being established that native plants are better for native bees. Well, yeah, native plants are really important, and I always suggest to have at least 50% of your garden planted with native plants. Um, And I'm the first one to tell you, I love my exotic plants. I love my things that aren't native. Um, But natives, they develop 
along with our native bees, and they have adapted together so they're best suited for each other. So native plants, um, the jury's still out on it, but if you are at Mount Cuba in Delaware, there's a study um, put on by um, Dr. Doug Palame, and they are doing trial gardens there where they're planting natives along with the cultivars of the natives, and they're trying to figure out if native plants are different in some way from the exotic species, and they're trying to figure out how important natives are to this ecological system. So they're doing trial gardens, and they have students come, they observe the plants as they flower, and they're observing which bees visit, and they actually will um, vacuum up the plant with a, a vacuum. It's a real vacuum on low power. They'll vacuum them up. They'll bag them up and identify them so they can figure out what insects are visiting which plant. So we're trying to figure out are natives less, more attractive to um, insects and that's what they're trying to find out at Mount Cuba. It's a fascinating study. Oh, I bet, bet that is because, you know, that's something that, um, you know, is, is kind of banded around a lot, that the native plants are, are better, I guess, for um, nutrients for native wildlife. Um, and, of course, po- pollinators in gen- general, um, they do need um, a certain amount of, of nutrients, and, and it's not just the bees that benefit from that. Are, are they studying other animals or, or insects as well, or is it just bees? Um, they're studying any any pollinator that comes to the flower. So it could be bees, flies, whatever comes and pollinates. Oh, well, that, that'll be interesting uh, to see the results of that because, uh, I mean, I mean, it's important that obviously that we um, provide enough for all the, the bees and all the pollinators because I think that, I mean, particularly as the bees have been suffering so much, um, try, trying to build up the, um, the, the population again, I think is important. Well, yeah, and um, I think it would be worth a visit up there if you're in the Delaware area because they're they're studying coreopsis, cucaras, coneflowers, asters, and um, they're going to have results in a couple years. But it will definitely answer that question: Are natives more valuable? Because we're we're thinking as gardeners, oh yeah, natives are more valuable, but that's anecdotal. Um, we're thinking that, but we don't have the evidence to back it up. Yeah, and I think it's de- definitely um, something that, uh, you know, everybody could, could use when they finally get it done. But, you know, we need to go for a quick commercial break here. When we come back, we will talk more about adjusting your landscape to be bee-friendly on the Master Gardener Hour with Claire Jones. We will be right back. This is Michael Gano with Insight to Israel. Every day, the Israeli Defense Force finds itself on the front line of the war with the militant arm of Islam. Surrounded by enemies from within and without, they fight for the only Jewish state. Military service is mandatory, ladies serving two years and men serving three right out of high school. While young people in other democracies are busy traveling or attending university, Israeli men and women gear up for basic training. In a world of heads of state, politicians, ambassadors, diplomats, and a leftist media, many times our voice at the grassroots level is drowned out. 
So we started an ongoing project called Hershey's for Heroes. Patriot conservatives from all over the U.S. are sending Hershey's chocolate bars with a note of thanks for defending Israel. Won't you join us by sending a sweet message to the IDF? For information, please see my Facebook page at Michael Gano. Thank you, God bless Patriot conservatives, and God bless Israel in her struggle for sovereignty and security. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. Today's consumers find themselves faced with a greater variety of choices than ever before, both in the food they eat and the information they receive about that food. Feedstuff's Food Link was created to provide you with a balanced source of information for making decisions about your family's balanced diet. Visit FeedstuffsFoodLink.com to learn about your food directly from the source, the people who work every day to provide it. FeedstuffsFoodLink.com, connecting farm to fork. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. You are back listening to the Master Gardener Hour. I am the host of the show, Kate Copsey. And this morning we are talking bees and other pollinators with Claire Jones, a landscaper in Maryland. And we talked about some of the plants and attracting bees and insects to the gardens with plants, particularly for the vegetable garden. So let's talk about the landscape as a whole. Um, what other elements beti- besides the flower itself um, would we need to maybe attract bees? I mean, do, do they need water in the same way that um, butterflies do, where you have to have kind of a gravel dish for them? Or what type of water vessel do we use for them? Um, well, you can use water. You can use a bird bath, something as simple as a bird bath with maybe some stones in it so the bee can stand on that stone. If you don't want a big bird bath where they're going to go in and drown. So just a bird bath with some stones is excellent, and it provides water, but it also provides water to mix with dirt for mud. And mud is so important to make a nest for a mason bee. Um, What they do is they lay an egg in a tube, and then they put a wall of mud in between the new egg and the old egg that they lay. So they have to have mud to reproduce. So you don't want to be mulching your entire garden. You want to leave some wild areas where you have some exposed soil, silt, sand, where they can mix it with water to make mud. So that's really important, Um, as well as you want to have some weeds in your garden. Uh. Talk about (laughs) dandelions. I know, this is... It's terrible to tell um, somebody who loves their lawn, but let the weeds, dandelions grow. Let the clover grow. Clover is a great forage plant for bees. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, don't use chemicals. This is so important. We're finding out that um, chemicals, in particular the uh, class of neonics, or they're called neonicotinoids, are really bad for bee brains. 
And these are a pesticide that gets in the plant, the vascular system, goes through the entire plant, including the pollen and the nectar. And if that's going to be in the pollen and the nectar, a bee is going to take that back to their colony and poison the entire colony. So we're finding, um, I have a, a really, really sad story to tell you. There is a Target store in Oregon. This would happened in 2013. And a landscape company was taking care of the linden trees that went around the Target parking lot. They uh. sprayed the linden trees while they were flowering with a neonic. It killed over 50,000 honey or bumblebees. And they found all these dead carcasses on the parking lot floor. They called the state. They came in. They found out that this landscape company should not have sprayed these trees while they were flowering. But this just goes to show you how uh, incorrect uh, application of pesticides impacts bee population. So be careful how you use your pesticides. Um, Americans use 10 times the amount of farmers per acre of pesticides. That's a lot of pesticide use. Wow. Um, and I, I know that we, we associate it a lot with, um, I guess, far, farmers spraying fields with, um, with pesticides and such. But the homeowners, I guess, are doing the same type of thing. Um, to, to, I think one of the problems with homeowners, particularly if you go down the chemical aisle of the big box store, they haven't taken the time to identify what the problem is before they throw something at it. Um, and they don't read, uh, too often they, they don't read the cautions on the labels that say it can affect fish and bees or whatever. Oh, yeah. Pesticide use is a huge issue. Um, and I think it's Home Depot that has started to label any plants in their store that they sell that are using neonics because you think of it this way. If that plant in a big box store has pesticides in it, you know, it's been treated with neonics, you're taking that home, planting it, and then the bees come forage from it and they're poisoned from it. So it's really important um, of good uses of pesticides and also, yes, reading your label and you don't reach for that can of um, pesticide when you have maybe a few bugs on your um, tomato plant. Let beneficial things, um, nature take its course. I always say, oh, my vegetable garden, the, the um, pests can have their part, and I'll take what's left. Yeah, um, but but I guess some bees bees are kind of loners and have nests in in the ground. Um, but I remember a couple of years back um, we had some little bees. They obviously I, I don't know whether it was post groundhog or or whatever. There was a little hole under the the shed, and there were bees visiting it. Not whole streams of it, and they didn't seem to be bothering anybody. But the kids kind of freaked out, as kids will when you see of a bee. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so what do you? What is the recommended action? I mean, the 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 
I think a lot of people would just say, eek, get the exterminator. Um, so what, what is the best way of dealing with that, particularly if it's in the proximity of something that you're using, like a garden shed, um, quite a lot? Well, I say um, get rid of it if it poses a danger. Say it's on the side of your house, right by your door as you come in and out. Um, and this would be like a paper wasp nest. Yeah, get rid of it. Um, even though they are pollinators, they might pose a danger, especially if somebody is allergic. Um, but if there's something, a nest hanging out in the back of your yard where you hardly ever go, why get rid of it? Leave it. It's not posing any danger to you. And why pay for an exterminator to get rid of it? It's ridiculous. So, you know, I say leave it alone if it's not bothering you. And I had I had a client who had um, a driveway lined with lavender bushes, and they were all full of bees. Well, he was afraid of them, and I said, these are honeybees. They're not going to hurt you. They're not going to sting you. They're too busy doing their work. But he, he was afraid of them. So you really have to um, figure out what kind of bee it is. If it's a paper wasp or a yellow jacket that goes in the ground, they can pose a problem. Um, I dug into a yellow jacket nest with a shovel once, and they threw it out. <laughs> it was very scary. And they are really, really, um, really dangerous because they can cause reactions if you're allergic. But, again, honeybees and the native bees, for the most part, will never sting you. Just leave them alone. Yeah, and and I, I guess uh, mo- most honeybees, particularly, um, they they are kind of docile. Um, but but what about shelter um, on a temporary basis? Um, you know, a honeybee is kind of do- doing its thing, and then you get a storm or, or or something like that come rolling across. Can they sense that something like that is coming and head back to um, may- may- maybe the hive or or? Do we need to provide some sort of shelter for them um, for when maybe predators come around or, or, or storms come over? <laughs> Bob, yeah. Well, sure. Um, a mason bee house provides shelter. Again, it's the tube, and they will go in there when it's raining, when it's too cold to uh, fly. They will go in there and just wait it out. And honeybees, I've seen them caught out in a thunderstorm, and they will hide under a bush. Or if you've ever seen uh, a bee in a squash blossom, you open it up and you'll see a bee. He's hiding out there until conditions are better, and then he'll come in. But, um, yeah, they will notice, and they will not come out when it's raining, thundering, Windy, that's another thing. They will not come out when it's really windy or cold. They will t- take shelter. And, and so you don't have to um, provide any, anything special for them. They can kind of figure it out for themselves um, when, when inclement weather or something like that is, is arriving. They, go, they sort of uh, go, go into a flower or something like that. Yeah, they will hide. They're, they're smart. And they will hide and take shelter until the conditions are more favorable. Yeah. And do they have any natural predators that attack them? 
Oh, yeah. Besides, uh, besides humans. <laughs> yeah, they, of course they have natural predators, and birds are biggie, bats. Um, and also, um, well, most birds will eat bees, but other wasps and hornets will prey on honeybees. Um, and that's a sight to see. When I go out to my hive and see wasps or hornets, they're out there waiting for the bees, and they're a lot larger, and they will sting with impunity, and they sometimes can take over a hive. If it's it's a weak hive, they will prey on the honeybees. Um, There's also mites that will prey on bees. in the tubes of the mason bees, there's mites that will hide and that will feed on the larva. So there are tons of predators out there. Um, and a lot of people, when they have mason bee nests, instead of leaving those cocoons, which are in the tubes, instead of leaving them outside where they would be prone to predators, they open up those tubes collect the cocoons and bring them inside, put them in the refrigerator for the winter because they need cold, cold storage. So that's how you can protect a mason bee cocoon from being um, eaten by something. Oh, that sounds like a novel idea. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I would imagine that's not something, though, that the average homeowner could probably be capable of doing, going and finding the bee and then, then getting it successfully hibernated through the winter. That, that's something professionals do, right? No, no, no. Um, homeowners can do this. Um, Crown Bees is a um, bee company in Washington State where they will actually buy cocoons from homeowners, if you so wish, and they'll buy cocoons and send them to farmers who need those mason bees to pollinate their fields. So anybody can do this. They have these little plastic, it looks like a Tupperware container that you can buy with holes in it for air circulation that you can put your cocoons in and stick in the refrigerator. So any homeowner can do that. And that's a great, great way to uh, maybe help restore um, the natural populations. Um, but, you know, we need to take our final commercial break here, but come back to listen more about bees with Claire Jones. And we will be right back. This is Dr. George from Peachtree Ear, Nose and Throat Center. Do you have problems with sinus pain and pressure? Do other people smell things that you don't? Have you lost the joy in eating because food just doesn't taste like it used to? Is your nose always stuffy no matter what you do? Maybe you have sinus or nasal polyps, a chronic sinus infection, or allergies that are either undertreated or have never been treated at all. At Peachtree ENT Center, we use state-of-the-art equipment so you can see the problem. You'll be a partner in your care, and together we will decide the course of treatment because we believe in old-fashioned medicine where we take the time to fix the problem, not just medicate the symptoms. We specialize in minimally invasive balloon dilation sinus surgery, correction of a nasal septal deviation, and turbinate reduction surgery that can be done in the office, getting you back to work the next day. And you can rest assured that all options will be discussed before surgery is recommended because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. If you'd like to make an appointment, call 404-591-9100 or reach us on the web at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge. 
not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. hope you're enjoying the Master Gardener Hour this morning. We have been talking about bees and different thing, things like that uh, with Claire Jones um, from Maryland. Um, and Claire, I believe you do talks um, to the public on um, honeybees and pollinators in general. Do you do the talks just in, in Maryland um, or, is, or do you go a little further afield? Um, I go, go all over. Um, I've done Virginia. I've done Pennsylvania. I even went to the uh, Northwest Flower and Garden Show in Seattle. Oh, wow. Yeah, I did a presentation on pollinators. It was called Sex in the Garden, and it, it's all about, you know, our bees, native bees, honeybees, and anything that pollinates a flower and how it happens. So I go all over. I do talks, I do a lot on garden clubs, um, court societies, but I do go all over. And it sounds like it would be a fun program to attend. Um, so is this advertised on, on maybe your, your webpage or something like that where people can see where you're going to be talking next? Yeah, it's uh, on my uh, blog. My blog is The Garden Diaries, and if you click on Events, it shows you all the things that I'm going to be talking about. And I talk about other things. I talk about landscape design, um, decorating, uh, floral design. But pollination is my first love. I love beekeeping. So I do a lot of talks on there. And just go to my blog. And you can also see on my blog a post on how to start up beekeeping, how to plant your pollinator-friendly landscape, what to plant, um, how to learn what swarming is, which is another whole subject of reproduction of bees, um, and how to make a mason bee habitat. Um, I also have posters or graphics on there of a bee-friendly garden, a plan that you can design and put in on your own property. And I've included a lot of bee-friendly plants in that plan. Um, I also have a poster on what to plant for the bees. And I have so much information on that blog. And my website for my landscape design is just Claire Jones Landscapes. 
And and so if people wanted maybe for you to do a talk to them, is there some somewhere that they can get in touch with you that out through your website or or the blog? Blog. Go on my blog, and there's a contact form. You fill it out and give me the information, you know, the size of your audience, where the particulars, and I will respond to you right away. And 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 your primary business is landscape design, and do you do the installation as well? Yeah, I own a landscape design build service, and that just means that I design. And then I hire people to do the work, oversee the work. And you can go on my uh, website. I'm on Hows. I just got Best of Hows for a um, pond installation, pond and waterfall installation. And you can follow me on my Twitter, which is Claire Honeybee. Okay, Claire Honeybee. Okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that, that sounds fun. Um, and... Yeah, and uh, and do you have a Facebook page as well um, for either the business or, or your own stuff? Do you keep the two separately on Facebook? Yeah, I, I do keep them separate, um, but you can go on either one and like it. It's Claire Jones Landscape and the Garden Diaries, which are both on Facebook. And please like it because then you'll get into my feed, and I post daily. It's really important that I post daily with good information. Um, Claire Jones Landscape is more about landscape solutions, um, but the Garden Diaries is a variety of gardening tips, um, including pollination. And, and so if somebody wanted uh, may, maybe a landscape uh, design for their own backyard or something like that, um, is it, would they use the same contact that they would for uh, talks and things like that? Yeah, it'll get to me. It just comes to me on my email. They can contact me either way on my um, website or my blog. And and so the the designs that you do, um, are they predominantly um, thing, things that attract bees and kind of pollinator gardens and may, maybe more casual native-type gardens, or, or does it depend on the, the homeowner if they want a, a, a more formal, um, shall, shall we say, uh, garden? You'd be able to do that too? Oh, yeah. I do a little bit of everything. And, of course, my first love is a pollinator-friendly garden, um, but I do all kinds of hardscapes, patios. I just did a stone labyrinth for a customer, um, and that's on my website, a picture of that. And she was um, the perfect client because she wanted this labyrinth, but she wanted to surround it with pollinator-friendly plants. So I put plethoras, ironweeds, all kinds of pollinator friendly plants around it so you can go on my website and see a picture of that and so so what um just briefly we've got about five minutes left um what yeah. would what would be maybe um some of the plants that maybe people could um put into a pollinator gar- garden um i mean some of them may be more common um perennials i mean are these the sort of things that you could pick up at the box store or would you need to mail order or, or go to a, a high-end nursery to buy these uh, pollinator plants um you can go anywhere these are common ordinary plants um my personal favorite is zinnias i start them from seed every year and yeah zinnia is not a native 
Um, but I love it and it's very valuable for pollinators. Monarchs come to it. So you really can get them anywhere. Home Depot, Lowe's, any of these big box stores. And you want to, um, if you want to have a list of the different types of plants, um, I would suggest getting the book Bringing Nature Home by Douglas Calame, and he has in the back appendix a uh, different list according to what area of the country you're in, and they're very complete lists. And it's, you know, exotics along with different natives that you can plant. Um, but, again, you want to have a big variety. Think a lot of different variety of plants. And you also want to have blocks of plants, like a three-by-three three area of one type of plant. It's much easier for a bee to zero in on a block of a plant than, say, one of that plant. So, so you you do a group of three or five uh, plants to get together, may, maybe. Um, but how how about when they these plants get bigger? Um, how how yeah. do you, yes. <laughs> Then you're, you're a gardener, and you adapt, and you're going to be um, moving those plants around. You know, a garden is not static. It's always changing, and you're always moving things around. I don't know about you, Kate, but I'm always digging up plants and moving them around. That's oh, the yes. fun of <laughs> And and there's always room for a couple of extras. And I, I I think from a landscape point of view, having threes and fives it makes a better initial um, cert- certainly um, view to the landscape sure, because it gives it that statement side. Yeah, yeah, and even three to five sometimes isn't enough. Think you want a block of three to four feet by three to five four feet. So you want maybe a dozen plants of the same variety. So think in larger numbers. And and do swaths of flowers. Blocks of flowers. And I also um, suggest to people, besides this book, become a citizen scientist. And you can participate in what's called the Great Sunflower Project. Have you heard of that? Uh, no, I don't think I do. Well, that is a, a citizen scientist project, and if you just go to the Great Sunflower Project online, um, it gives you the information, and basically, you grow lemon queen sunflowers in your backyard, and then you track within, say, a 10-minute period every day for a week how many pollinators are coming to that particular flower. And then you enter that information into the database. And this takes place all over North America. So people, hundreds and hundreds of people are participating, adding to the database so that scientists can better track bees. And it's a great project. Anybody can do it. You could do it if you have a balcony and you grow some lemon queen sunflowers on the back balcony. You don't have to have a large property. And that that would be great to do with kids as well, wouldn't it? Yeah, and kids, let's start with um, bringing your kids in. And they, you could set them up and say, just count how many bees are coming. You don't have to identify them. Just count how many there are. 
Of course, it helps if you can identify them, and that would be a great science lesson for any kid. So, so that I mean that that sounds sounds like um, a great project to to do with, um, with 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 your kids. Is it just the lemon sunflower that you can use, or can any sunflower um, work work for this project? Actually, you can use any flower. You don't have to use lemon queen. Um, they're suggesting lemon queen as kind of like a standard, but you can use any particular flower and just. You know, track it for that 10 minutes and count how many are coming to the flower. It's real simple. Yeah, and, and te- almost anybody can, can do 10 minutes. And that's called the Sunflower Project, is that right? The Great, Great Sunflower Project. Okay, um, and that's something I think almost anybody can do just for 10 minutes a day. Um, and, and say, if you bring kids in. But uh, we're... we're Pretty much at the end of the show, Claire. Thank you so much for being here and talking about bees and and other pollinators because it really is such an important um, topic, I think, for all gardeners, for for the health of of a garden, to have all these different things in there. Well, thank you for having me. I hope I inspired some people to do the Great Sunflower Project and maybe to even become a beekeeper. Oh yes, and I, I, will, I will promote that. I'll put the the link to that on the uh, the Facebook page, everyone. So go to the Master Gardener Hour, and I'll put that that link on there. Um, okay, that's the show for today. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Master Gardener Hour this morning. Thank you again, Claire. It's been a great Thank show. You. Yes, um, and we'll be back next week with another show talking all about gardening and gardens. Have a good gardening week, everyone, and join me back here next Saturday. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.